That's about it. So why don't we do this right now? Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Uh, if you guys are new here, welcome. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we started uh, several weeks ago a series through the book of Matthew, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And a little series that's called the Sermon on the Mount, or that is basically covering the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus talks about a lot of different uh, subjects and ideas as he goes through this. We've been basically just taking it verse by verse uh, chapter by chapter, going through the whole thing. And so right now we're in chapter 6. We're going to pick it up this morning at about verse 16. Uh, but what I want to do before we jump in is I want to basically kind of carve out a little bit of a direction as to where we're going to be going this morning. Uh, because Jesus is going to be talking about fasting. Now, fasting is something I think a lot of us, we don't really understand or talk about that much. And I think for the most part, in terms of our culture and our context, we tend to think of fasting more in terms of kind of like a health benefit. And I think, I think fasting is good. I think people tell you fasting can be really good and healthy and whatnot. However, the way that the Bible addresses the concept of fasting really has not much to do with health benefits. I mean, it might be a, a fringe benefit of it, but it's not necessarily the thrust of what fasting's all about. And so what we're going to be doing today is basically taking a look at two specific things as Jesus talks to us about fasting. The first thing we're going to look at is this, is really just trying to ask the question, what is fasting? So I'll really attempt to give as uh, comprehensive an answer to you guys as to what fasting is from the Bible. Again, so that we can all be kind of on the same page and have the same foundation by which we can understand what fasting is. And then we'll be asking the question, how does Jesus want us to fast? Now, for the most part, this teaching is not a teaching of which Jesus is trying to urge us to fast. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus already assumes that we do. So if you look at the passage in uh, Matthew here, as well as other passages that arise throughout the Bible, the Bible never really teaches on trying to urge us to fast, other than calling us to a fast. But it already assumes that fasting is basically a part of kind of the religious structure or the matrix or the nature of which the people are who function within it. So Jesus is going to basically say, hey, when you fast, here's how I want you to do it. So with that, I'm going to pray. And then we'll basically read the passage and we'll get to work on this text. So let's pray. Father, we ask you right now that you would just take our minds and our thoughts captive. That we would think of you, that we would consider you, that we would be able to clear our, our, our thoughts of, of anything that would distract us or keep us away from focusing upon your word of Letting your heart speak to us. God, letting your word address us. Lord, we ask you this morning that as we read your word and as we study your word, that it would not just simply be about information, but it would be more so about transformation, that our hearts would be changed. God, that the encounter that we have this morning with you would not just simply be more random information to add to everything else that's there stuffed up in our brain. But God, that it would transform us, that we would live like you, that we would reflect something of the character, the nature, the beauty, and the greatness of our Heavenly Father to this world. That's what we ask. So we just humble ourselves before you right now. We ask that you would open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, and we pray it together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, let's pick it up at about verse 16. I'm going to read. If you guys want to follow along, you can. That'd be great. It says this. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. So Jesus basically is addressing his uh, followers. And he starts all of this basically in chapter 6, verse 1, where he, he says, Hey, when you do your righteousness, um, don't do them to be seen by men. But do them differently. Do them in a way that is not like the hypocrites. And his reference here is kind of a, a, it's kind of a strong one. Because he's basically referring to the religious leaders. The people that were respected in his day for religious practice or religious duty or religious leadership. And so basically Jesus is saying, hey, when you guys do acts of righteousness or works of righteousness, or some of your translations might say charitable deeds, when you do these things, don't do them in a way the way that the religious leaders do. In other words, here's what he's saying. Um, 
works of righteousness that Jews did were basically broken into three categories. It was fasting, which is what we're going to look at today. Praying, we looked at this last week. And then giving your goods or your money to the poor. So those three things Jews would look at and say these were charitable deeds or righteous acts. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, when you do these things, don't do them the way that you've observed through your, your leaders. In some ways, he's sort of usurping, undermining, if you would, the authority of the religious leadership. He's saying, these guys do it all messed up. And, and here's what I love about this. Rather than Jesus, because you know, sometimes how, especially in our culture, when we see, say, a religious leader doing something that's maybe all messed up and perverted, it's all twisted, sometimes the way that we react to things like that is we try to go the opposite direction and try not to do it at all, right? Or we try to not even talk about things like that. I'll give you examples, all right? Um, I think sometimes this is what sort of happened historically, even within sort of maybe some really extreme Pentecostal-type circles, where miracles, signs and wonders, things like that can be, can be, not always, but can be abused, that some religious circles are like, uh, we don't believe in signs, wonders, miracles today. I think, personally, it's an overreaction. It's an overreaction to something that's legitimate, but was done wrong, or done improperly, or done in a way that was not really giving glory and honor to God, but might have been giving glory and honor to a religious figure, right, on television with a weird... But the point that I'm making is this, is that rather than just sort of throwing all that out the door, what I think Jesus is trying to say is there's legitimate things that are just being improperly done. And I want to show you how to do it rightly. And so fasting is one of those things that Jesus is going to address. So with that, I want to make sure that we all are on the same page with regard to what fasting is. So the first thing I want to do is basically try to answer the question, what is fasting, so that we're all on the same page biblically as to what fasting is so that we understand fasting especially within the context of which Jesus is talking about fasting so what I want to do is I want to basically give you several different ways in which fasting appears throughout the Bible so that we can understand that but before that I want to give you guys a little bit of a, a working definition so here's a definition that I had last night or yesterday when I was kind of working on this I, I called my wife in the room like hey can you help me out I want to I want to read this to you in fact I didn't actually ask her can you help me out I just said hey I want to read this to you I'm, I honestly, I was like proud of it. I'm like, hey, I want to read this to you. I think it's pretty cool. So I read it to her. She's like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, what? It's awesome. What are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. She's like, it doesn't make any sense. I'm like, whatever. Help me out then, all right? So here's what we did. We worked on this together. So my wife, thank you for helping me out with this. So here's, here's, what, here's the definition that I'm going to try to write about fasting. And then we'll try to go through the Bible and try to give you some definition or some uh, meat in terms of how this works. If you don't understand it, you can blame my wife. All right, so here's what it is. Fasting. Fasting, sorry. I love my wife. She helps me out a lot. She's my, my best partner. All right, fasting is this. A redirecting of our time, hunger and desires toward God, which normally would have been satisfied by energy given to food and comforts. All right, let me read it again. A redirecting of our time, hunger and desires toward God, which normally would have been satisfied by energy given over to food and comforts. All right, let me, let me, let me say this one more time, because that's what pastors do, right? They say one thing eight different ways, all right? And then they get accused of repeating themselves, but that's my job. So here's what I'm going to say. Imagine it this way. Normally, what we do with fasting, when we're talking about fasting, and especially in the Bible, it's this idea of basically saying, I'm going to abstain from something. In the case of the Bible, oftentimes, for the most part, it's food. But I don't think it has to just specifically be food. It can also be, in our modern-day context, things, anything that we tend to give an over amount or a large amount of energy to that can tend to steal our hearts away from God. So what we do is we pause from doing those things that traditionally can be good. Food good? Food's great. I love food. But at the same time, food can become something that distracts us from God as television, as is maybe entertainment, as is Hanging out with friends. Does that make sense? All of these things are, are good. In fact, the New Testament tells us food is good. It's a gift from God. So we've got to be careful when we talk about food, when we talk about saying abstain from it, because in reality, if we don't have a proper understanding as to what and why fasting is talked about in the Bible, what happens is we basically take fasting, turn it into a work of righteousness, when in reality, food is a good thing, gifted by God. And Paul says it's to be received with thanksgiving. 
So Paul's point is that eat food, it's really good, it's wonderful, but eat it with thanksgiving. And so here Jesus is saying, don't eat food. So which is it, right? So the way the Bible wants us to think about food or abstaining from it or fasting is we take a season in which we abstain from it and instead of actually the time and energy that we normally give to eating it, we stop and we use that energy time and redirect it towards seeking God. Does that make sense? I think one of the best books I've ever read about this is by a guy named John Piper. It's called Hunger for God. I think it's one of the greatest books. If you ever are interested on what fasting's about, how it works, how it can function, as well as some of the, 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 the side bad benefits of it, meaning if it's not done right, I think it's one of the best books on the subject. So pick it up, read it. But basically where it goes on to is it's this idea. That's why I put the little second thing right there. It's really hunger for God. It's, it's using hunger and passion and longing that we have, which again normally gets satisfied by other things, television, food, whatever, and saying, I want to use that hunger to be satisfied by God, to be satisfied by God's power, to seek after God's provision, to find God's wisdom. And what you'll find in the Bible, that when people fasted, these were the things that they were looking for. They were looking for God's wisdom. They were looking for power. They were looking for God's presence. They were looking for God's protection. These are the types of things that you'll find consistent all throughout the Bible that are basically uh, coupled with praying and what we're going to be looking at today, fasting. Okay, so let's begin to take a look at how this sort of unfolds in the Bible, and I'll kind of give you some examples. The first example is this. The Bible gives us is what I'll just call sort of a normal fast. This is uh, sort of abstaining from all foods, but not necessarily liquid. So in other words, uh, you can eat food, but you don't, or, or you, you don't eat food, but you can drink water or juice or something like that to live. Because, um, you know, within this type of fast, you can go quite a long time. And uh, like upwards of 40 days. And one of the examples we see is in Matthew chapter 4 verse 2. Jesus does a 40 day fast. All right, the very beginning of his ministry. It says this, for 40 days, 40 nights, he fasted and he became very hungry. Uh, Luke 2, just to reaffirm this, it says Jesus ate nothing all that time and he became very hungry. So I think this is a good example of sort of a normal fast because it implies Jesus just stopped eating food. Otherwise, it would have said Jesus became hungry and thirsty, right? So I think it's a good example of a normal fast. Um, next one that we see is this, is a partial fast. And uh, this is, uh, I think, most commonly identified in a guy by the name of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, if you guys want to turn there real quick, you can take a look at it up here. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine that was given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat of these uh, unacceptable foods. Uh, and then he says in verse 12, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Okay, so Daniel was in Jerusalem or in the city or within, the, within uh, Israel. And he was taken captive to a faraway distant country called Babylon. And what, they, what was going on is they took these guys like Daniel, a couple of his friends, and they were training them. They were basically going to school. And they were teaching them, training them to basically be high up officials within the Babylonian government. And to do that, they needed to learn not only the educational system, but they also needed to learn to eat like a king. All right? Which sometimes probably involved pork. Right? All these like non-kosher foods. So Daniel's like, ah, I can't eat pork. All right? I'll, I'll defile myself. And so Daniel's like, God, what do I do? And Daniel realizes, I think what I need to do is I need to fast. I need to ask them if I can fast from eating anything except vegetables and drink water for just a period of time of 10 days. And he does that, and that's called a partial fast. Next one is this. An absolute fast. All right, this is a complete fast of all food and all liquid. And uh, the reality is, from what I'm told, is that you can only survive up to three days not drinking any water. Is that true? Is that true? Anybody like Rambo-ish out there that knows the real truth is answer? How long? Seven days? Seven days. Okay. All right. Here's my disclaimer. Just because I love y'all and I don't want to get sued. Um, if you are going to fast, 
if you are going to fast, do one of these, any types of fast, talk to your doctor first. End of disclaimer. Okay. Ezra chapter 10 says this. So once you read this, it says, Ezra left the front of the temple of God, and he went to the room of Jehoahan, son of Eliashab, and he spent the nights there without eating or drinking anything. So it tells us that Ezra, what happens is he recognizes there's massive sin going on here. And Ezra is greatly grieved over the sin of the people of Israel. Um, a lot of horrible stuff going on. And his response to this is basically to tear his ropes and to respond by praying. I mean, this is kind of an amazing guy when you think about this. I mean, how many of us, when we get really angry, is our first response of saying, you know what, I'm going to go fast and pray for a few days. Bye. I mean, I mean, we just, we go crazy, all right? Some of us, like, lose our temper, and we break televisions, and it's just not good. Throw holes in the wall and punches. It's not good. Ezra, he's a man of God. He's like, I'm going to go seek God. So he fasts for a handful of days, and his fast is an absolute fast, or a complete fast, however you want to call it, where he does not eat or drink anything. And that's what's going on with him. And you can read a other couple other passages in the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 16. I want you guys to turn real quick to Acts chapter 9, verse 8. Acts chapter 9, verse 8. I want you to turn there. All right, you're like, how come, this, how come the verse isn't up on the screen, Pastor Brian? Uh, listen, I just read actually an article this, this past week that said that pastors that just put verses on the screen exclusively uh, create people in the audience who don't bring their Bibles. And I know you guys don't do that. I mean, you guys are awesome, right? You guys are not lazy Christians at all. And, uh, but because I love you, because I really love you, and I want to make sure that you know how to use your Bible, um, we're going to look it up. So Acts chapter 9, verse 8. Acts chapter 9, verse 8 says this. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And they says, so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight. And he neither ate nor drank. So here's what was going on. Saul, who's this guy who's a persecutor of the church, who's not a Christian at this particular, or just before this particular time, he's on his way to Damascus to uh, persecute, arrest Christians. God supernaturally comes down upon Saul, opens his eyes, he begins to see Jesus in a whole new light. Uh, his life's changed. But his whole theology has been radically transformed. So in other words, Paul's looking at it like this. You know, I, I was a persecutor of the church, but now my eyes have been opened to Jesus. I don't get this. I don't understand this. So he's led by the hand to a city, or the city called Damascus. For the next few days, he doesn't eat or drink anything. It doesn't tell us exactly what he does. My guess is this. For those few days, he's just absolutely blown away. He can't see anything, but he definitely realizes something happened supernaturally that he can't explain. So what does he do? He goes and he seeks God. How? By leaving food for a season and drink for a season to devote his time and energy to seeking God. So that's sort of an absolute fast. Okay, the next one. We see, I'll call this a supernatural fast. There's only two instances that I, that I know of, actually in the Bible, that sort of talk about this. And I'm going to, what I mean by this is uh, uh, Moses and Elijah, the two figures that do this. And what happens is for a long period of time, both of these guys don't eat any food or drink any type of liquid for a long period of time. The reason why I say it's supernatural is because, as we heard, that if you go seven days without drinking, you die. So for some reason, both these guys went for a very long period of time without eating or drinking anything, uh, seeking God, and they lived. So that's why I say it's sort of a supernatural type fast. Please don't try this. Don't try this one, unless God allows you, all right? Next one. Okay, congregational fast. Um, what you'll see throughout the Bible, there are occasions when God calls the children of Israel to something special, something spectacular, where, say, for instance, the people as a congregation of the people of Israel are not following after God. So in Joel chapter 2, what you're going to find is what happens is God basically calls the congregation of the people of Israel to a fast as a congregation. 
And so the whole point of this is God's basically saying, you guys have sinned against me, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to call you back to a congregational type fast. In chapter 2, verse 12, says this in the book of Joel. Joel's one of those little books that you uh, can skip by very quickly if you're not careful. Verse 12 says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So the people of Israel were obviously in a place where judgment was imminent. It was about to come. And God's word to the congregation of the people of Israel, the religious people, he says, listen, I'm, I don't want your worship music anymore. I don't want to listen to your sermons. And I don't want to watch you guys do religious duty. That's why he says, stop tearing your garments. See, here's what they would do. It was a sort of an outward show of tearing their garment by saying, ah, our, our hearts are feeling really bad. So what they would do is they'd tear their garment. They would rip their garment. And God says, don't rip your garment. Tear your heart. Tear your heart. Be different internally. Don't just show outward signs of religiosity. Be different internally. See, the reality is, a lot of people come to church, a lot of people who call themselves Christians really aren't Christians. You don't really live like it. You act like it. You look like it. You put on a mask that looks like you're Christian. You got a Bible. You do all the religious stuff. Right? But the reality is, is the heart is really cold towards God. And this is God's point. He says, listen, I don't want outward activity as much as I want your heart to be right with me. So God calls for this fast. He says, change the way that you're going, and the way that you're going to get there is fast and pray. And you'll find, you'll discover, as God goes on to say, I'll turn from my my judgment upon you, and I will heal you. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you today need to hear that and let that penetrate your heart and realize that God actually means business. He wants to change your heart. Okay? The next one that we're going to see is this in Acts chapter 13. Hold on, go back real quick. Sorry. Acts chapter 13. This is one of my favorite passages, by the way. Acts chapter 13. Uh, Why don't you turn there real quick? Acts chapter 13. Uh, here's the deal. The early church was growing. They had a lot of uh, uh, great stuff that was happening. The people were being filled with the Spirit. Uh, churches were being planted. One of the churches, one of the first churches that was planted sort of as a mission endeavor out of Jerusalem was a church about 300 miles north in the city called uh, Antioch. And it was in this church that a guy named Barnabas uh, was basically sent from the Jerusalem church to go help plant. So here's Barnabas serving at the church. A lot of great things are happening. And uh, around the same period of time, uh, that same guy that we read earlier in the book of Acts, around chapter 9, who gets saved, meets Jesus. He's living in the city of Tarsus. And uh, Barnabas takes kind of a little bit of a hiatus. He visits Tarsus. And he basically asks Paul, he says, Paul, why don't you come help me plant the church and help see the church in Antioch become healthy? So here they are, Antioch. Uh, serving God, seeking God. You can ask the question, what did the church in Antioch do? I mean, like, what were their activities all about? Here's one of their activities. What I love about Acts chapter 13, it's like it answers one of those questions that sometimes people ask, like, what was the early church like? You know, there's a lot of talk about this today. People are like, we got to be like the early church. You know, as if the early church had everything together. Now, I want to admit, there's a lot of things that they did right. There were a lot of things that they were still learning and that they didn't do right, that they had to learn by trial and error to figure out. But one of the things they did write was Acts 13. So here's what they were doing in Antioch. Uh, I love this. In verse 1 it says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Later on it goes on to say in verse 2. It says while, we were, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So here's what I want you to notice about this is that basically the church in Antioch, they met, they hung out, they fasted, they prayed. For whatever reason, it doesn't really tell us exactly what, what sort of stimulated this. Maybe it was just something they did as a regular basis. But in this particular prayer meeting, as they were worshiping God and fasting, basically what we want to do on Sunday nights, 
It's just this. I mean, if you're, if you're like, well, what should, what's Sunday night's going to look like? Hopefully this, right? That's what I'm shooting for. Hopefully this. As we just get together and we fast and pray, seek God, and worship him. Let God speak. That's what we're hoping for. But what I want you to notice is that as the church did this, the greatest missionary endeavor was born. All right? So it's out of this prayer meeting that literally Paul the Apostle, all right, and this guy Barnabas are called by God to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So it was literally just days after this, these guys hop on a boat, and they take a boat, and they go off into the area of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and they basically go around from place to place, city to city, preaching the gospel in the places where Jesus had never been heard before. So here's what I want to make the point about, is it was literally from this prayer meeting, as these guys were kind of like, God, what do you want us to do? God speaks, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Paul and Barnabas, your two church planters, your two best men, lay hands on them, and send them out, because there's a world out there that I want to reach. You know what really excites me about Sunday nights? Our time of just devoting to God. I'm, I'm stoked, because I look at it and I think, you know what, I wonder how many people that we just don't even know about that God will raise up and call to serving him with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. We just don't even know it yet. We just don't even know it yet because we haven't sat there and God hasn't revealed it yet. But to me, it's like, how amazing is that to think just taking time, devoting to God, fasting, praying, and worshiping him, that God just moves and shows the direction for the church to go. And it was from that that you can literally say that as the church began to grow around Asia Minor, Paul went on other missionary journeys. He made his way up into Greece, up into parts of uh, Europe. And it was from Europe that people got saved. Churches began to be planted. Those churches began to spread. They began to plant even further north and further east. As they went higher and higher, they went up into areas of like Britain, which is where churches began to grow and flourish from there. Literally, obviously, you know the rest of the story, the history. That was from there that a group of, you know, people after the Reformation, they thought, yeah, we want to we plant a church. We want to see God do great things. They ended up moving over to America. So in some ways, you can say this. We got the gospel today from this prayer meeting. It's amazing. Because a handful of people said, God, we just are hungering for you to do something great. Here we are, God. Send us. From that prayer meeting, God says, those two guys, pray for them, put them on a boat, say bye to them, and ship them out. Provide for them, and the gospel's going to go begin to spread. That's what happened. All right, last one is this. Next slide. You'll see, I'll just call this like a national fast. And uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3, kind of a, a, a dark moment in the history of the people of Israel. Um, under the leadership of a guy named Jehoshaphat, he takes over. Things are pretty bad, pretty dark. People of Israel, if you ever kind of know anything about their history, they kind of were like a roller coaster, up and down. Sometimes they're doing good, sometimes they're doing bad. And uh, Jehoshaphat takes leadership, and he realizes we need God. We need God's help. So what he does, he basically calls for a national fast. And verse 3 says this, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So here's what was going on. Jehoshaphat, the king, basically says, we need God. Things are bad. Things aren't looking too hot. Uh, we need God. We don't know what else to do. I mean, we've had meetings. We've taken votes. Nothing seems to work. We've taxed you guys. We don't seem to have enough money. Things are bad. What do we do? Jehoshaphat had enough insight from God, by grace, to say, I think we need to pray. I think as a nation, we need to pray. I think we need to take a day whereby we fast, stop eating for a moment, and just seek God. Seek God. That's exactly what happens. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, you should write these down. Check them out later. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Another great verse. Esther chapter 4, verse 16. Another great verse. And uh, Jonah. Uh, the story of Jonah is amazing because what was happening is that this group of people called the Assyrians, um, you know, modern history is that a lot of people have kind of looked into the past at the Assyrians. These guys were pretty evil people. I mean, they, a lot of historians believe they would have actually wiped themselves out because of the way that they lived. But God, being a gracious God that he is, he wanted to save them. 
So he sends a prophet to them, right? Jonah. It's the story of Jonah. You know, the story of Jonah is, is, is not so much about a whale and all this type of stuff. It's really about God wanting to show mercy to a pagan nation and save them. So what he does is he calls a prophet to go. I mean, it kind of sounds, sounds, kind of sounds very similar to what happens with another missionary named Jesus. God so loves the world, he sends Jesus into the world as a missionary so he can save. Only with Jesus, as opposed to Jonah, Jesus embraces the cross. Jonah runs from it. God grabs him, ends up shipping him back through a whale, throws him up on the uh, coastline, double entendre, and then he ends up making his way off over to Nineveh, preaches the gospel, and all these people repent. And then the king basically says, we're going to proclaim a national day of fasting and praying because we need God's help. We need God's help. So that's what happened with Nineveh. So check this out. I was doing some research on this and kind of found out, do you know that in our nation, I mean, when things started, I mean, we're a different nation than we were when we started, okay? You gotta know that. Um, we're a different nation. But do you know that in the history of our nation, on three different occasions, Congress has actually called for fasts and praying for days of fasting Congress, all right? Um, here's another example. Maybe you didn't know this. Abraham Lincoln during the time of the Civil War, he actually called for three separate days himself to fast and to pray on a national level. He basically just recognized things are not good in our nation, things are horrible, uh, we don't know what to do other than to call upon God. So he calls for, on three different occasions, a national day of fasting and praying. Uh, President James Madison also did the same. Um, as I was reading this and kind of doing some research for this, one of the most amazing ones that I came across was John Adams, our second president. Um, calls for a national day of fasting and praying. Okay, so check this out. I want to I read you a little bit of an excerpt from this because I think this is so phenomenal, especially when we think about it in light of the day and age and the culture in which we live in. I mean, can you think about the day and age in which we live in? If, if like our president today were to be like, okay, everybody, yo, next Wednesday, everybody stop what you're doing. You got a day off from work. Don't go into work. In fact, don't watch cable. Stop Twittering. Everybody put down your burrito, all right, double-double, laid aside, golden arches. Everybody stop what you're doing and just take a day and pray and fast because we need God's help. We don't know what to do with our economy. We don't know what to do with these greedy CEOs of these companies. We don't know what to do with them. Our hands are tied. We don't know, we don't know what to do with Afghanistan. We, we don't know what to do with terrorism. We don't know how to keep fighting these things. We feel like enemies are on every side. It's affecting our trade. It's affecting everything. But God knows. So let's seek him. Can you imagine that? Well, that's happened in our nation before. So check this out. John Adam. Love this. He says this. As the safety, okay, this was in uh, the 23rd of March, 1798. He says, as the safety and prosperity of nations ultimately and essentially depend on the protection and blessing of Almighty God. And the national acknowledgement of this truth is not only an indispensable duty, which the people owe to him, but a duty whose natural influence is favorable to the promotion of that morality and piety, without which social happiness cannot exist, nor the blessings of free government be enjoyed. All right, I know that's hard language to understand. I read it to my wife. I had her interpret it. Okay, here's what it said. Here's what I think he's basically saying, all right? I had to read through it a couple times too. I'm not that smart, but after the fourth time, I got it. All right, so here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, look, we owe everything to God. Everything. I mean, we have freedom in this country because God is free. We have liberty in this country because God has gifted it to us. And he goes on basically in his document to say, all that's being threatened today. He says, we owe it to God just because God created us to thank him. But even more than that, if we're going to continue to exist as a nation, to have the freedoms, to enjoy those freedoms, if we're going to be able to exist in a civil unit whereby not everybody's living in fear of their next door neighbor, or in fear of losing their job, or in fear of their house going away, if we're going to live in a nation that gets past fear and lives as community. The only way that we can get there is by living in a way that acknowledges God as our creator. So here's what he goes on to say. He says, I have therefore thought fit 
to recommend, and I do hereby recommend, that Wednesday, the ninth day of May, next, be observed throughout the United States as a day of solemn humiliation, fasting, and prayer. That the citizens of these states, abstaining on that day from their customary worldly occupations and food, offer their devout addresses to the Father of Mercies, agreeably to those forms of methods which they have severally adopted as the most suitable and becoming. I like this. He's not saying everybody has to pray the exact same way Presbyterians pray. He's like, look, we're a united nation. We all see things in some way differently. But the point is, we've got to humble ourselves before this God. Now, mind you, it was not a Muslim nation back then, and all this stuff that was going on. It was, for the most part, either deistic or Christian. That's what was going on. So he's saying, look, just pray. Pray to God. Fast. Then he goes on. Uh, agreeably informs that our methods are severely adopted by the most suitable and becoming and all religious congregations do in the deepest humility acknowledging before God the manifold sins and transgressions with which we are justly chargeable as individuals and as a nation beseeching him at the same time of his infinite grace throughout the re- or through the redeemer of the world or Jesus freely to remit all of our offenses and to incline us to by his Holy Spirit to that sincere repentance and reformation with, which may afford us reason to hope for his inestimable favor and heavenly benediction that it might, that it be, that it be made the subject of particular and earnest supplication that our country may be protected from all the dangers that threaten it. And it goes on. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a president saying that? Well, that happened in our history. All right? So the point that I want to make is this, is that, that was a fast that was sort of a national type of a fast that we see all throughout the Bible, but we also see even historically, even within our own nation. So with that, I want to kind of finish up with a few other questions in terms of really asking the question, what does Jesus want for us in terms of fasting? So again, to summarize, what is fasting? It's basically redirecting of our energies and our time that would have normally been given over to food and other types of, uh, uh, you know, things that satisfy us, to redirect that energy to God, to seek Him, to pray, to ask God's favor for His power, for His protection, for His presence, all of these things. So we've seen all sorts of examples of these throughout the Bible. So how does Jesus, in light of all this, want us to pray? Because I've already mentioned that Jesus is not saying, hey, you guys should pray, or you guys should fast, it's great. He's basically saying, when you fast, Here's what I want you to do. So the first thing I want you to know is how not to. So take a look at verse 16 again. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. So the first thing he says, don't look gloomy. I love this word, gloomy. It's the uh, Greek word skothropos, skothropos, skothropos. It just sounds gloomy. Right? If you are scothropos, you're gloomy. So here's the picture of what gloomy means. It's basically this idea of like you're contorting your face in such a way where you just look really messed up. All right? Like, like purposefully look like you've been in the octagon. All right? You're just messed up. All right? And it, something doesn't look right on you. You just look messed up. And he's saying they would do this uh, because it was their way of sort of giving an outward appearance to other people that they fast. And the idea is this, is that as long as other people know that I fast, then they'll think I'm holy. All right? So the point is this, let's say this. Okay, if you're going around and you're telling people like, hey, what's up? I fast every day. You missed it. All right? I'm sorry, you missed it. You missed the whole message of Jesus. The goal is not to go around and to announce when you're giving money away to the poor, to announce when you pray, to not pray in such a way so that you can be hurt. You know, some people, you can listen to them pray, and they pray as if they want to be hurt. Have you been in prayer meetings where people, like, pray a sermon? You know what I'm talking about? They pray like, like a Bible study. You're like, that preaches. That's amazing, right? I don't think prayers are meant to be like, like a preaching session. Our prayers are to be to God in the same way our fasting is to be Godward. That's what Jesus is saying. So don't contort your face 
don't make yourself look disfigured. The second thing is, don't disfigure your face or mess up your hair. So these guys would like mess up their hair. They'd throw ashes in their hair, put ashes on their forehead, and basically make themselves look pretty messed up so that people would look at them and think, oh, you're fasting. Are you really committed to God? And the third thing he says is this, don't look to the reward from people. The bottom line is he does not want us to be looking to other people to pat us on the back and give us affirmation. Now, this, is, this is not a problem that we oftentimes face, we struggle with. I mean, we, we really try hard to be affirmed by other people. And I think the bottom line, the reason why we do this is because we're a little bit confused as to who we are. We're discontent with who we are, right? So we look to other people to give us affirmation. I mean, the reality is people become Christians um, this just doesn't change overnight. I mean, I know Christians, people that become Christians, and here's the way that they sort of move out of sort of the high school mentality of wanting to have everybody have attention given to them. So now they're Christians, and the way they operate is they try to get plugged in in everything, and, and they want people to acknowledge them and to recognize them. So I think what Jesus is saying is, look, if you live like that, you will get your reward, and your reward will be in the form of people patting you on the back. That's a very shallow reward. You know why? It's very short-lived. It's very short-lived. I mean, I'll give you an example. If you, if, you, if you come, I mean, have you ever been in a place, in a church, let's say, for example, and you look at a particular spiritual leader, you're like, ah, I, I want that guy to know my name. I want him to like me. I want him to acknowledge me. And, and so maybe uh, you've met him a few times, and, you know, you've told him your name, and then, you know, say after a few times, he just still doesn't know your name, all right? Let's say his name is Brian Stupar. Let's just hypothetically say that's his name. All right? It's easy to get angry with them, right? Or anybody, any type of spiritual leader. Because what happens is we really, really, really want to be acknowledged. And when we're not acknowledged, we get upset. When we are acknowledged, everything's great for a moment. And we're let down. Because they let us down. Jesus is saying, look, that type of reward is very short-lived. Search for a reward that's longer lasting. And when you fast, don't fast in such a way whereby you're contorting your face, you're living in such a way that people recognize you and acknowledge you. If you live for that, you'll get it. You'll get it. Okay, how are we to fasten? Jesus says you put oil on your head. It's kind of interesting. Oil throughout scripture is a sign of gladness. So it's kind of interesting. There's a psalm that talks about uh, and he'll give us the oil of gladness. So it's this picture of oil being anointed on somebody's head. And I think here's what Jesus is saying. Look, you know, all the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, they walk around with their faces all bummed out, sad, looking all messed up. But he's not you. So the way I want you to fast, look happy. Be cheerful. Go to the opposite extreme. Don't look bummed. Put oil on your head. Second thing, wash your face. It's just a good thing to do hygienically, but I think at the same time, he's basically saying, look, they put uh, ashes on their face, right? Their faces look all messed up. They're like that dude from, like, Peanuts. You know, every time he walks, like, dirt coming off everywhere. That's kind of a picture in my mind, like, these guys are, like, fasting. How do you know? Because they're like that guy. I don't know his name. Dirtbag? Pigpen. 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 Like, Pigpen. Dirtbag. Sorry. Dirtbag. He is a dirtbag. Jesus is like, look, don't, don't do that. Anoint your head with oil. Be happy. Wash your face. Wash your face. Don't let people think you're dirty for the sake of thinking you are actually fasting. And then he says, finally, really, look to your heavenly Father to reward you. Your Father will reward you. Your Father in heaven will reward you. At the end of the day, I think what Jesus is trying to say is this. God is not interested with external religion. Okay? You know, it's funny, because throughout the history of the church, we've had these, like, phases where things become very institutionalized and sort of external. Um, I think of even, like, during the 50s, right, in our, in our country, during, there was a massive uh, liberal movement that was arising, and there was a reaction to the liberal movement, which was called the fundamentalist movement. And what had happened was sort of this, this radical counter-reaction to the liberal movement of fundamentalism, um, sort of a new definition as to what it means to be Christian. 
And it was the 50s. I mean, people wore hats every time they went out, and they all looked nice, and everybody wore, like, zoot suits and stuff. You know, they all looked cool. And, and I think what happened was, you know, time kept going by, and, and people began to associate righteousness, people go to church, fundamentalism, with people who really dress up nice. So the idea is like, oh yeah, real Christians, like wear a pressed collar shirt to church on Sunday, and argyle socks, all right, or maybe even a sweater vest. I mean, like really the quintessential Christian looks something similar to Mr. Rogers, all right? He's got a really sunken in chest, and yet he loves Jesus, all right? And the reality is this, is that what happens is people begin to associate right righteousness or right relationship with God with, with, with the way you're dressed. And, and what happens is, I think every once in a while, God just comes in and he's just like, listen, I'm going to change all this up. So God created hippies. <laughs> right? I mean, like during the 70s, God created hippies. He's like, all right, church is all messed up. We're going to change it up again. So God's like, all right, bam, hippies are like, they're on the planet. And they need to get saved. And they're coming to churches, and they're totally throttling the whole system. All right? I mean, people are tripping out. They're like, these guys smell like patchouli oil. I mean, they smell, you know, and, and yet they seem to love Jesus just like the dude in a suit and tie. And here's what God's doing. He's taking that old wineskin, and he's like slitting it, and he's like, we're going to start over. Because the issue is not the skin. What matters is the wine that's inside the skin. And Jesus is saying what really matters is not what's on the outside. Not how you act. Not your morality. Not what you do for God. But it's what's inside. And it's really what is in response to what God has done for you. Thankfulness love and giving your heart back to God in response to his grace and his kindness and mercy to you. In many ways, as I've said this before, the Sermon on the Mount is really about Jesus. What was happening in his day, the religious leaders were turning religious activity into this strenuous duty that we do this because we're righteous. We do this because ah, we're, we're we're God's called. We are called of God to live this out, to strenuously do it. And here's what happens. It paints this picture that God's servants that are straining to serve God, maybe they're reflecting God who strains to love mankind. And God's like, no. I love mankind. I don't strain. I never thought twice about sending my son. My grace is rich and full and complete. God did not have to obligate himself to send his son to bring salvation. The way the scribes and Pharisees were obligating themselves to serve God. Jesus is like, no, no, no. You got it all wrong. When you do your righteousness, fasting, praying, giving. Do it in a way that's like a mirror. That's complete. That actually reflects something of the nature of God. God gives freely. I give freely. God gives generously. I, I, I give generously. God gives graciously. I, I give graciously with no strings attached. God gives out of love. I, I want to give out of love. God gives sacrificially. I want to serve. Do you guys understand this? Getting this? What happens is the religious leaders, rather than taking a whole mirror and reflecting, their mirror was broken and they were refracting. Refraction is when you take an image that's being looked at in a mirror that's broken. It's broken. It's like a million different pieces. Everything looks messed up. But Jesus' whole point is I want you to reflect the Father who's good in everything. And it begins in the heart. It's not external. So here's the deal. This is why we love Jesus. Because Jesus comes and he embodies this. Jesus comes and he lives this. Even though Jesus went to the cross, this most horrific type of death, it says he joyfully embraced it. 
Think about that. Joyfully embrace the horrors of the cross. Humbly lays himself down for this. He's not sitting there sort of tabulating, okay, I've done this for them and I've done this for them. And, you know, but Jesus is like, I will do this freely, Father, because I love you. Here's what Jesus is saying in turn. You, as you serve the Father, do it in like manner. Do it in response or in reflection of your Father who is in heaven, who is a giver, who's genuine, who's good. That's how we're to do our righteousness. That's how we're to live. Ultimately, with this picture in our mind of our job is to position ourselves in such a way where the world sees the Father in this reflection of our lives by the way that we live. Everybody can see through when you grit your teeth and you say, fine, I've got to serve God. Everybody sees through that, all right? If you don't think they see that, get married and try that with your spouse. You'll find out it doesn't work. You can't just somehow fake it in marriage. God wants us to reflect something of his nature. This is why he sends his son as a missionary into our world to seek and save those who are lost, to bring us back into right relationship with the Father. Some of you here today, you need to rip off the masks some of you here today, you need to respond by asking God to forgive you of your sin, crying out to him for his mercy, and God who gives freely will give it. We're going to respond right now by singing to the Lord, by giving our songs of worship to God. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. We give joyfully to God because God's a joyful giver. If you're one of our guests here, please don't feel any obligation to give. If you want to give, you give because you love Jesus, because you love this church, you love what God's doing here. You want to be able to give back joyfully. We're going to uh, just give our heart and our songs to the Lord. We love Jesus because he first loved us. We respond to Jesus because God initiated great love and affection to us through the cross, through Jesus. That's how we're made right with God. So I'm going to pray. We'll respond. I invite you guys to join and worship the Lord with us. If you're here, you don't know Christ. Look, there's no hoops to jump through. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin. It's pretty simple. Ask God to wash you of your sin. I'm going to pray. Let's do it. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us. We humble ourselves before you. We give ourselves to you. We redirect God right now. In response to you, in response to Jesus, our energy, our hearts, our affections to worship you, our good God. Mm -hmm.